Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Future Proof Podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, and rating as always. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at scienceatnewstalk.com. Coming up on this week's Future Proof, we're going to talk about gamification and how technology companies have taken our lives and sort of turned us into mini Marios. If you're someone who gains points or earns badges for just doing real life things, why is that? Uh, we'll be digging deeper, um, speaking with an author about this whole area in a few minutes time. But first, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me in studio is Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU School of Chemistry and science communicator Catherine McGuinness. You're both very welcome. Our first story. has to do with that um, the piece we covered last week about the space probe that smashed into an asteroid so it happened but we we wanted to know whether or not Catherine we could tip the asteroid out of the way is not the idea that's it the idea was to knock it off its orbit and the idea of success for this would be to reduce the orbit by about 73 seconds or more. What they've managed to do is to reduce it by 32 minutes, which is like 25 times more than they were hoping, which is amazing. Um, So, yeah, listeners might remember last uh, month you had the DART, not the Dublin Rapid Area Transport, but the the double asteroid redirection test, which is the spacecraft which went into the asteroid Dimorphos, uh, which is a moonlet of a larger one called Dimorphos. And what happened was... Once the impact uh, happened, we had astronomers viewing it using the different telescopes, such as the Hubble and the John James Webb. And then we also had radar looking at the ejecta, so the, the plume of ejecta that happened after the impact, and then also measuring the orbit to see if there has been a change. And, and we have seen a, a significant change in the orbit. So this is good news. This is a huge success for NASA, for the European Space Agency, who will come next with HERA. And uh, yeah, it's great news all around. Um, how, how big is the, the probe to, compared to the asteroid. It's not big, is it? It's not big. It was only about 650 kilograms. And the asteroid it hit into was 160 metres across. Yeah. And it was orbiting a much bigger one, 780 metres across. So this asteroid, right, Mm. if we hit Earth, would it be like extinction event or would it be like... Something this size, yeah. So uh, uh, something this size would wipe out a city. Okay. Absolutely. So... NASA have their their naughty list, basically. So they're near-Earth objects, they're EROs. And what they do is they keep an eye on these guys to make sure they're not getting too close, they're not misbehaving, they're not changing direction. And to be on that list, you have to be at least 140 metres and you have to be 7.4 million kilometres within us. Now, the reason why this guy isn't a threat is that although it's over that 140 metres, it is 11 million kilometres away. So they're not. It's not a threat to us yet. But yeah, like. but hang on a second. We just knocked it off course. What if it goes in <laughs> off the post? It's all just gone then... horribly, horribly wrong. Like, how did, like, do they know? They, they 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 were like, oh, I hope it's a couple, a couple of seconds, and it ended up being thirty-two minutes later. Like, what if it goes? It well, knocks into another fellow and knocks it like you know those trick shots. That Steve <laughs> like, Davis like, used like, to like, do. A, like a massive butterfly Snooker effect. Snooker loopy. Is what you're saying. 
you know? Well, they're, they're going to keep an eye on everything. They're going to keep watching all the different asteroids within our field. They tell us that for the next 100 years, we're OK. We're good. Wow. It's actually crazy to think that for 100 years, they have already figured out the maths on Asteroids, of which there are many, yeah, in a yeah. space that is pretty big, and yeah, they've already and, gone around for hundred years. They have computer programs, and they're they're fixing the computer programs the whole time. They're they're adjusting them, and the results from this will be used to improve computer programs for prediction of these kind of events. I mean, six hundred and fifty kilometers is not very heavy, as you say. Mm. We've put much heavier things into space, and, mm. and so we uh, presumably then could probably uh, deter uh, larger things should they come our way, but. Yeah. Uh, that's very unlikely by the signs of it. So uh, we, we're doing the homework for generations to come, perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah, but we're, we're, they're still keeping an eye out as well. Okay. Um, our second story seems like such a stretch, Susan. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad you said that. Yes. Um, it's to do with potential microbes on Mars that could have covered their tracks. Yes. So um, if you go back in time about like, imagine you could transport back in time by four billion years ago to Mars. Mars was not quite as dry and as barren as it is now. There was water there underneath the surface and on top of the surface there was the soil um, that was still dry, but just about a few centimetres underneath the soil were microbes and they were living there and they um, were microbes that ate hydrogen from the atmosphere and they produced methane. So it was really not anything like Earth in terms of its hospitability, but they thrived there and they were doing really, really well. And when they spent back at this, um, the methane and the soil, it protected them from the harmful rays that were coming from the sun. However, what happened was um, an enormous imbalance basically happened because they were uh, thriving so much. They took too much of the hydrogen out of their own atmosphere and they sort of like shot themselves in the foot by then causing temperatures to plunge really low to around minus 200 degrees Celsius and then they all had to burrow deeper and then they no longer were able to survive. So they they were the reason for their own extinction, um, which is, I mean, quite sad, I think. And it's, it's interesting that people are researching this, right? Um, so so, it happened so the key ago. word there at the beginning of your um, story was imagine, because this is absolutely not proven at all. Um, there's no, nothing to even, suggest, well, I mean, there are some things that suggest it could have happened, mm-hmm. but there's nothing to suggest it has happened. Indeed. Uh, this is just postulating a theory um, that one of the ways there could be life on Mars, yes. but we don't know if there is life on Mars, is is this could have happened. Yeah, this could have happened. And this, you know, th- this could How have been... How is this useful? Well, I suppose um, when I was reading this, I thought to myself, well, there's a there's a species that shot itself in its foot with its own planet. So, I mean, maybe there's lessons to be learned. about. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's what I thought. We're all going to die. <laughs> maybe we're those microbes. And maybe it's instead of four billion years ago, it's today. Yeah, yeah. No, I see what you're so saying. Perhaps okay, there's a, there maybe there's a philosophical learning there. But I think really there is about, you know, maybe the, perhaps the, the understanding, I think the authors were saying it's just more of a, they did say it was quite despairing that this had happened. But for them, it was very... Um, but now, just to be clear, this hasn't happened. There's no evidence to suggest this has happened. This is just a theory. Yes, they have, so they have modelled things and they have looked at um, like the, the chemical elements that were there and, and hypothesising how the... You know the atmosphere might have changed, etc. So yeah, absolutely, there's yeah. no. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we don't, yeah. we have not discovered Martians. Not yet, even a microbe. Just no, yet. not even four billion years ago. Well, I suppose um, one of the ideas is that you know, if we're going to look for life, we need to come up with theories as to where it might be, and one of the suggestions uh, it might be this model, and then they would have a better idea of of where to to look for for microbes. I suppose does this 
theory give us any um, greater clue as to how likely we might find life on, on Mars? Well, I, well, one thing they had mentioned was the fact that um, they, they started to think about the location that they hypothesized that these microbes might have been because then that might direct us to, it's very hard to search all of Mars, right? Yeah. But it can direct us to places they talk about where there was water-rich sources um, nearby. So if we can hypothesise that there would be, you know, basically direct us to, although it seems logical now to say it out loud, but um, or they might be able to at least direct us to where we could search for yeah. life on Mars rather than just try and send the rover out to search yeah, the, entire, <laughs> the entire planet. It took a very long time. It's like the detectorists. I don't know if people are watching <laughs> yes. that programme at the moment, uh, which it seems like what they're doing um, with their um, uh, metal detectors. Uh, thank you very much, Susan. Our third story uh, has to do with baby talk, Catherine. Yes, or how I speak to my cats, whichever way you want to call it. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> but infant-directed speech or baby talk. So, you know, when, when, when we see babies or children, hello, hiya, oh, look at you, you're so big now. Oh, look at you. Yeah, okay. Uh, so um, what these scientists have done is they have looked at the modulations of people's speech. Now, mainly it's European languages they've looked at at the moment and they do admit that more work needs to be done. But they want to see um, this modulation that we have. So we change our pitch, we change our uh, enunciation, we change the melody, so we, we sing song. They want to see, is it the same across all languages or is there a slight difference between English and other languages? And what they found really is that pitch, melody and articulation generally are the same across European languages. They don't seem team to move around that much. But what does change are vowels because you have some languages that use a lot more vowels in the words, say like Finnish or Danish. Yeah, we won't go down. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I'm really regretting saying that. Yeah. <laughs> Expecting some emails. Go on. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it was very Swedish chef from um, the Muppets, wasn't it? Mm, I, mm. That, okay, please continue. Good I, will, I will. <laughs> so, um, I was trying to uh, there, there are sounds there that we don't particularly use the umlaudy sounds and the other, mm, other mm, and, and, and the more vowels per word if you like sure. and, and that, that sort of thing so they look at other languages Welsh as well as another one so what they're looking at is that possibly baby talk in those languages is a, the vowels are a bit more pronounced and that is because you know you want to give the unconsciously you're giving the child those speech notations and, and making them understand that the vowels are important and the vowels are used in a certain way um, which is it's, I mean it's really really interesting um, my cats haven't noticed any difference <laughs> in how I've talked to them. I have tried to modulate. But, you know, this study is based on English and then versions of European languages. So you're, you're leaving out like massive languages like Arabic and, you know, Mandarin Chinese. So they do say there's a lot more work needs to be done. Okay, yeah. It would be interesting to see if um, people from Asia and people from Africa mm. do that sort of... It's Sing song, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting. Um, our final story, Susan, uh, has to do with when we eat. Yes. So um, there were a couple of papers out this week um, and they were in the exact same edition of the same journal, which just doesn't happen very often in, in, in the same kind of field. So you've probably heard of intermittent fasting um, and a lot of people are trying this now as, as a way to, um, you know, lose weight and also control their sort of um, their intake of calories and, and health benefits, um, which basically is where you would eat in a specific window of sort of between eight and 12 hours. So usually people might do like noon till eight o'clock. Um, and there's a lot of health benefits like it helps you moderate as I said you know weight loss um, improve cell function um, and decrease your blood pressure and oxidative stress so there's a lot of good things out 
to do with that. Um, so what the two papers looked at, first of all, the first one looked at how time-restrictive eating, which is what this is called in the literature, um, could benefit shift workers, so people working shifts. And um, as we know, there's also a lot of evidence of the um, health implications of shift working. So you know, Working a night shift is a disaster for, yeah, working, for people's health. You know, yeah, working and changing, absolutely. Because of the circadian rhythms, light, night, day and so yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. Like risk of obesity goes up, heart disease, gastrointestinal problems, really no end actually. It's becoming a health threat I would say um, so the first paper monitored basically um, kind of signs of metabolic disease in 153 firefighters who worked 24 um, hour shifts and they looked at one cohort just ate between 9 o'clock and 7 o'clock so 9 in the morning to 7 in the evening and the other cohort at from 7 in the morning to 9 so a little bit earlier and a little bit later and the main finding was that the people who had the time restrictive diet had a significant reduction on the um, production of really really small like lipoproteins which are a sign- like an indicator of cardiovascular disease but that was it really from that paper I mean everything else is like not much different not much difference but they themselves say it was only 12 weeks as well so mm. these sorts of things would need to be studied over a long period of time and the second paper right next to it in the journal um, looked at different uh, again times of eating and if it ties in very very well to the first paper because basically the second paper um, the both of these were in cell metabolism they looked at late eating so they say stop eating at night time basically and I think a lot of people have you know adhere to that um, and they they looked at wondering they wanted to know why you know people do this maybe habitually or have read somewhere in you know pop sci whatever that this should be done but um, they saw significant increased health benefits and they looked at when, so when they, it was when are we not supposed to eat yeah so we're not supposed to eat after 7 what? it's kind of the time 7 in the evening and they say late night eating increases but Spanish people start eating yeah, at 10 yeah absolutely I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing they don't eat maybe from seven, I'm not sure they're probably still. Yeah. I don't know, um, but they did see increased levels of leptin and ghrelin, which are the two hormones that regulate your appetite. So yeah. you know, they for basically the following 24 hours you were hungrier if you'd eaten the night before, um, and then oh. they burned fewer calories if you had eaten the night before. So I mean, it's just it's, I think the main take home from these was like this is a field that's really deli- you know still in still being figured out. Yeah, you still know? a lot of discovery. Yeah, but this 10 hour window seems to be a good thing a good if you thing. can if you can manage it. If you yeah. eat within a 10 hour window and to finish eating early yeah exactly um, take home uh, points there I mean I think in about 10 or 15 years time it'll probably be a whole other playbook that we'll go by and, and it's probably because of the work that we went on at this time you know um, Dr Susan Kelleher from DCU and science communicator Catherine McGuinness thanks very much for joining us Yiddish author and playwright Sholem Alechem, the man whose stories form the basis for the 1964 musical Fiddler on the Roof, once proposed that life is a dream for the wise, but a game for the fool. So is modern technology and gamification making fools of us all? Well, Adrian Hahn is CEO of Six to Start and author of You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. He joins me now. Welcome to the program, Adrian. I have to say, when I heard about this concept of gamification, I thought it was a brilliant way of getting people to use technology and have to do boring things in a more interesting way. But reading this book... Uh, you've put a really dark slant on it. Let's uh, first off talk about what is gamification. And maybe you might do that by, by talking about uh, Zombies Run, that game that, that you made. Sure. So gamification is basically using ideas from game design, like points, badges, achievements, missions, leaderboards, and applying them to non-game purposes, like learning a new language or 
you know, um, trying to run more, you know, trying to do more exercise. And so my company um, has made a game called Zombies Run that tries to make running a little bit less tedious and a little bit more exciting. You know, there's only so much we can do because if you're a beginner, running is pretty tough, but that's what our game tries to do. Can you explain the gamification in Zombies Run? So in our game, we do it through uh, audio adventure, basically. So when you get ready to go out, you put your phone in your pocket or in your you know, armband, you put your headphones in, you start running, and then we put you in an audio adventure where you are you know, a survivor in a zombie apocalypse and you need to run in order to escape the zombies uh, and help survivors. And as you run, you automatically collect supplies that you can use to level up your base. So it's a kind of immersive adventure uh, that that turns running into something a bit more adventurous. Which, which to me sounds like a fantastic idea because I find running extraordinarily boring. And this concept, as you say, of, of adding badges and achievements is everywhere from banking apps to, to um, sport, uh, entertainment, uh, and even education. And, and most people would say, well, this is a good thing. We're making life to be more entertaining and more fun. But built into a lot of these programs is a desire for profit, increased eyeballs, and, and that leads to things like compulsion loops. Can you tell us what compulsion loops are and why they're a problem? Well, you know, compulsion loops are a way of describing how a lot of video game design works. And even though it sounds a bit scary, it, it's pretty it's pretty harmless in most cases. So in a video game, you know, you might you know be battling enemies and you might uh, level up your character, which allows you to get a new weapon. And that new weapon allows you to battle even better enemies and give you more choices and give you even better weapons. You can see you go through this loop where as you play the game, you basically get more chances to kind of do even more of what you were doing before, but in new variations. And so compulsion loops are are, are kind of fine in video games, you know, providing the video game itself is actually quite fun. And, and often they are. But when these things get applied to games where you have no choice but to play them, so games, gamification in the workplace, or games which are kind of maybe being misleading about how useful they are in terms of improving your life, then, yeah, it gets, it gets a little bit darker. Give me examples. So, you know, I'll give you two examples. One is in brain training games. So you might have seen these promoted on you know your phone. And these apps basically claim that if you go and play these mini games, like doing arithmetic or spatial reasoning, you can increase your intelligence. And the truth is, it doesn't really do that. <laughs> um, it might make you better at uh, memorizing some numbers, but unless that's your job, it's probably not going to be that useful. But you know, because they're using these techniques from video games, they can get you keep on getting you to keep playing these mini games over and over again just in the hope that it's going to you know improve your life now that's not as harmful as other things at least all you're doing there is wasting a bit of money and wasting a bit of time but a lot of companies now use gamification you know in the workplace so if you drive for uber or you work for Deliveroo, or you know you work at a lot of gig economy companies. They use gamification to set your tasks and to determine your bonus. So if you drive for Uber, then you will get uh, every week or every two weeks this quest that you can pick from, 
and depending on how many trips you complete during that time period, you get a bonus. What? And yeah, and so you know, obviously that sounds good because you think, wow, like what's wrong with getting a bonus? And it wouldn't be a big problem if Uber drivers were being paid a huge amount of money, but but actually, in reality, the bonus is a pretty important part of their compensation. And the problem here is that you don't, you as a driver, don't really have any choice. You don't have a lot of control over whether you get that bonus because it's not really up to you how many jobs you get exposed to. And of course, if the bonus is big, potentially it's encouraging you to take risks by driving when you're tired or driving in unsafe ways, hmm. which is what some people have have talked about. Uh, Deliveroo, how have they used gamification? Same, same sort of idea? S- same sort of idea. I mean, you know, but actually in, sometimes in kind of more sophisticated ways. So, you know, all of these gig economy companies will do things like, oh, if you go and do five jobs in the next hour, then we'll give you 1.2 times bonus, you know, if it's a Wednesday and, you know, the moon's overcast. But, you know, it just gets very complicated, but you essentially get this very complex web of bonuses and incentives all dressed up in the form of a video game because it's not it's not like it's new that people get bonuses that's that's an old idea you know and that's not gamification but what's unusual is how these apps and how these companies will communicate them they'll say hey you've leveled up you know you've got more experience points you've earned this quest you've completed this quest and it's weirdly infantilizing, obviously, because it's like, hey, I'm not really playing a game. I'm doing a job here, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but it's also making it seem like uh, you have a lot of control. Because like, in video games, you often do have control. You know, you, you can decide how much you want to play. You can decide whether to play or not. And the game is often meant to be fair. You know, if it, if it wasn't a fair game, you wouldn't play it. But obviously, in these... Uh, Companies, they are incentivized to make as much money as possible. And one way of doing that is to pay people less. And it would be bad for them to just go and say, look, we're cutting your pay by 10% tomorrow. But if they go and say, hey, we're we're just changing the quests we're offering you, then it's kind of hard to know what they've done. What about um, gamification in schools? I mean, isn't that a kind of a good idea if education of a child is is the goal to reward them through gamification through a, a school platform or a school app where they get bonus points for excelling in, in their study? Well, you know, that depends on how you, you view motivation and schools. You know, it's not new that kids get gold stars or they get grades or they get you know marbles and a jar you know these sorts of incentives and rewards have been around for a long time so maybe people think that's fine but you know there are apps now like class dojo which are used in a lot of schools around the world 95 percent of u.s schools use class dojo and it allows teachers to reward and deduct points from students in real time And what that means in practice is that if a student is being noisy, you can immediately say minus 20 points. If they're being badly behaved, minus 10 points. If they want to go to the toilet too much, minus 50 points. You you can do that if you want to. And so you're just awarding and deducting points all the time throughout, you know, the day. And that's that's obviously quite different from from the classrooms when I grew up. 
And some parents do like this, and some teachers do like this. They say this is a great way to control the classroom.、Mm. Uh, and in fact, one one kid who who was asked about this said, "Oh, I I really like it because it's like when you give a dog a treat." Um, but, but, you know, some parents, some, yeah. So some parents have said, look, this is terrible because it's just giving my kid incredible anxiety because all she's worried about is points. losing points. Yeah, exactly. So that's a question. Is this the way we want to motivate kids to learn well at school? What about the、um, abuse of social sciences and psychology that some of these、um, organizations use to get us? To do more by making something gamified. One of the things that really horrified me was learning about the evolution of the the one arm bandit, which,、uh, of course,、mm. in the in in the United States, started off as a three bar option. You pull the the, the lever, and you got an option of、uh, of one line where there were three options. And some genius figured out that wait a second,、uh, if we give five bars when you pull the the handle, they could win seventy five percent of their money back. But lose twenty five percent, but it sounded like a win, and this psychology of using bright lights and lots of noise and 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 sort of ringing bells when they lose twenty five percent of their their spend、uh, gave people this idea that they were winning where they were constantly losing money, and that to me was a horrific idea. But actually, you go into a casino; they really sort of hijack your senses to make it feel like fun when you're actually just pouring your money into a machine. And I'm wondering: is there are there equivalents of that in, in other industries that you came across where the gamification was really hyped up and really used against you to your misfortune? Yeah. So all these industries learn from each other. You know, I think a lot of industries have looked at the gambling industry and said, "Hey, how can how can we get some of that?" And so you can see that same idea of you know confetti and of you know a surprise and of like lots of different chances to win. You know, and、um, losing all the time. In two kind of surprising areas, one area is a finance industry. So actually, a lot of stock trading apps.、Uh, there's one called Robinhood in the US. Use gamification, you know, confetti and prizes and things like that to attract new traders. I was going to say players,、um, maybe the, the same thing, and also、um, to to kind of encourage them to trade more. It seems. Wow. And so. You know that that's kind of really interesting, where a stock trading app is using ideas from the gambling industry, but then also the video games industry is actually taking ideas, I think, from the gambling industry. So you have this idea of loot boxes, which you know, if you have played FIFA or you know games like Genshin Impact, you know, a lot of the most popular and most profitable video games now use ideas similar to the ones you've mentioned, where You know, you'll go and spend real money buying a treasure chest, and there'll be fireworks and and you know all sorts of special effects going off, and you'll get half of the stuff you wanted and half of the stuff you didn't want, and you'll be like, well, I guess maybe next time I'll get something better, you know.、Mm. And so, you know, all of this is obviously to just try and make more money, but it's it's being refined in a really interesting way.、Yeah. Now, I think the important thing to say here is that it's not like mind control. Right, it, it affects some people more than others, but of course, you know they wouldn't be doing it if it was completely useless. You know, they are quite smart. These companies. Yeah, do we need better regulation for games and apps that are in, designed to make you play longer, or is that just fair game in a free market? 
Well, you know, I, I think this really comes down to what you think is, you know, important. So there are some governments that are regulating this kind of gamification. So in Europe, I think uh, Belgium and the Netherlands have looked at banning loot boxes from video games. Wow. Because they I are, Belgium, for people who don't know, they're, they're a big feature. I play Call of Duty. I play a lot of video games. People may not know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, Call of Duty, think, you can, you know, you can spend a lot of money um, yeah. uh, to, to get those. And uh, my, my kids play Pokemon. And one day I saw um, Pokemon Go and it was a hundred euro off my credit card account. And I was like, what the hell is that? And someone had bought <laughs> like 10,000 poker coins and a loot box. And I was like, oh, that's real money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So... So the UK government was thinking about banning uh, loot boxes as well. They didn't end up doing it. They told the industry to clean up their act. We'll see whether anything happens mm -hmm. about that. In the US, they are talking about um, regulating gamification of the finance industry, like the apps I talked about before. Right. Look, you know, I, th I think it's a bit of a sort of, it, it's a gray area because I think there are some companies that are trying to use gamification in good ways. Of course, I think my company does that. And, you know, it's really a bit of a sliding scale. At the same time, you know, we have heard of, you know, the the UK government receives thousands of messages, you know, from people saying their lives are being ruined because they'd spent too much money mm. on loot boxes and things like that. So it has real effects. You know, there's not just some theoretical harm. You know, there are people who are really affected by by these kinds of tricks. Well, um, it's really interesting, particularly as someone who plays video games. And I'm reading this amazing book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. If oh, yeah. You, it, it's brilliant. If you're, I'm just in this world right now. So really interesting to speak with you. Uh, the author's name is Adrian Hahn. The book is called You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. Adrian, thanks for your time. Thanks a lot. Very interesting that, isn't it? Um, and I, I like I do uh, I do a few of these sort of things. Love to hear from you what sort of apps um, you are using to sort of gamify your life. Uh, do you earn coins or badges or or points for doing something other than what we've talked about? I do a bit of Duolingo and I find that little bird so f annoying. Like I've just had enough of the bird. Um, he makes you, he tries to make you feel really bad as well. Uh, Aidan McKelvey, our producer, um, joins us to go through some of your comments from last week. How's it going? Pretty good. So, does the bird? Did you select carrot or stick? The bird's giving you stick, is he? Uh, he's doing a bit of both. Yeah, there's a bit of emotional blackmail. The bird's like, "You're um, you not learning Spanish is making me die," and that, that's I get that sort of stuff. Like, it's really full on. Um, so, how are you doing? Good? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Do you do any of these app I, things? I did a whole thing last year where I had to hit 10,000 steps a day, every day for the entire year. Wow. Which, uh, and it was funny, well, it was funny. <laughs> yeah, it was It was exactly that. I wouldn't have done it, only that I was kind of the year before I'd noticed I did like a charity thing where you could do it for a week. So this is a really good way. You know, you get to see your neighbourhood and... You know, you get to you get fit, and it's it's a good thing to do, but uh, it did become sort of obsessive. Like I had a good few nights where, you know, it's ten to midnight, and I was and it's lashing rain outside, and I'm walking up and down my corridor while my girlfriend's watching TV, going, "Come on, come on!" Oh man, you have like a commitment level. Like I mean, obviously you 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 did sport at a very high level, you did music at a very high level. You just a very like you commit. That's pretty cool. And you're doing radio at a very high level, obviously, producing this show. Uh, so, comments from last <laughs> week. <laughs> we were talking about the heart. Um, and someone says, uh, we were talking about, you know, how the heart is designed, I think our our, our, our guest said. And the, and this someone says, that lady speaks about the design of the heart. 
to have a design, you must have a designer. Likewise, with the latest theory of the creation of the moon, when this material broke away from the Earth and formed the moon, the moon then provides the gravitational stability of the Earth, in that the tilt that we spin on provides the season as much as we complain about the seasons. If they didn't exist, the planet would die. It's back to design. Thanks, uh, Kevin. Um, is this a, a chat? Is this a talking about like, is this a God thing? Is this yeah, it God has thing? to be a God thing. But yeah. I, I guess the, well, the thing that scientists would say and that I would say is that yes all those things do happen the tilt of the moon or the tilt of the air blah 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 but that doesn't prove a designer nor does it disprove a designer yeah but like I mean I'm, I'm an atheist right I, I, I really I do and we talk about this too much I think in the programme but anyway I do you know I just say look where's the evidence just give me any evidence any evidence at all any evidence but like you do have to say like Life is crazy. Like yeah. the whole world is crazy. You look at any any subject deeply enough. Like look at like the the construction of our our universe. What what you know? Scientists claim that all of all of everything that we know was created in a billion a millionth of a second. Everything we know, all planets, all that stuff like that makes me go, what? <laughs> I mean, it is crazy. Yeah. And we're taking we do you know we we take the word of experts who are studying this and you know, I can see how someone might. Who does you know, who doesn't buy into convention of education and trust and you know someone who just doesn't Michael this that's right that sounds like total bullshit because it does sound like bullshit it's insane all of our best theories about how everything works like quantum mechanics everything it's all crazy yeah and so many of have them, I lost it <laughs> no, no I don't think so like, <laughs> I know this program so long yeah. no no I think that like it is crazy and there's loads of parts of it that are. Not only do we not know, but we're kind of incapable of knowing because, like, it doesn't work in the human brain no. like an infinite universe no. or a start with nothing before the start or nothing. You know, you know, you're like Big Bang, but what was before the Big Bang? Yeah. All that stuff doesn't work. And I would say to the listeners, and this is the way the way I approach my life. My life lesson for this week is uh, embrace that not knowing. There's kind of a nice, you know, people have existential angst about whether there's a god or whether there's not a god, but there's kind of a nice thing about like. There's, it's mystery. It's a big mystery. Yeah, well, uh, enjoy the mystery and you'll find out one way or another, I suppose, the, in in the next life or not in the next life. Well, I'm, I'm, a more, the I'm a bit more of a hardliner on the whole atheism front. And I kind of, you know, Stephen Fry really articulated it really well in that interview with Gay Byrne, right? Where he says, you know, Gay Byrne said, if you met God, what would you say? And, and Stephen Fry said, I would say, what sort of a monster are you that you'd allow, allow childhood cancer, you know, to happen? Like, you know, for no one, for for people to suffer for no reason, for no fault of their own, to live just to to have a life of pain like that. That's a pretty good argument for there isn't a god, and if there was a god, he or she is. Well, it's a good argument for there not isn't, a decent there, thing. There isn't a god like a Christian god or the way we conceptualize god. An all knowing, to, all powerful, yeah. interfering with the universe. God, but, but there might be a creator and also like that's you have to remember is that like lots of other animals don't follow our idea of morality in any shape or form so who's to say that our idea of morality isn't also just one of our blind spots of ignorance and that there is a different type of morality that God would say what's going on (laughs) you shouldn't have brought this Kevin Kevin, dude, you opened up the Pandora's box again. Let's close it. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Thanks to Aidan McCovey, Anna Vinglarchik, Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva, who was on sound. We'll be back with more in your Future Proof feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.